Welcome back to another episode of the Sidious Mag Podcast on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Chavez. And before we get going, I just wanted to say, if you've enjoyed this show, or if you've enjoyed any of the other podcasts that I help produce, edit, and publish, whether it's More Than Running with Dana Giordano, Runners of New York City, Running Things Considered, Track and Field History with Jesse Squire, Showrunners with Scott Fobble, any of these, if you've enjoyed it and want to support us in 2021, we've got a Patreon page. It's linked to in the show notes where you can make any sort of pledge of whatever feels comfortable to you. And we could keep these podcasts going strong and produce more episodes in the new year. You can also support us by picking up some really cool merch. Rep Sidious with a dope crew neck, hoodie, t-shirt. All you got to do is visit SidiousMag.com and hit the merch tab. We've got tons of merch there and are going to be dropping some new stuff soon. So stay tuned for that. My guest for today's episode is Andrew Bumbleo. He's one of the OGs of the Bowerman Track Club and has been training with them since 2010. In this episode, he announces that he is no longer running professionally for them and no longer a Nike athlete. That's right. He's retiring. He is shifting his priorities and getting into coaching. On January 1st, he launched High Gear Running, which offers personalized coaching for runners of all levels from the mile to the marathon. So you'll hear him discuss where the name for that venture came from and what he's hoping to accomplish there. But more importantly, we'll also take a deep dive into his career from his days starting off as a soccer player in Tennessee all the way through his consistency as one of America's best 5K runners of the past decade. He'll share the workout where he dropped Chris Zielinski and some other fun stories like his fifth place finish at the 2018 Boston Marathon. We all know that one. That's the super cold and rainy one where Des Linden won. He finishes his career off with personal best of 13-12 in the 5K and 2-10 in the marathon. So it was an honor to get Bumby for his exit interview of sorts, and we're excited for what's to come next. So without further ado, here is Andrew Bumbleo. All right, now we welcome on Andrew Bumbleo to the City of Smack podcast. Bumby, so what is uh, what's new with you? 2021, brand new year, lots of shuffling going around. People are changing teams, contracts are expiring, people are moving on to different places. I know you've got your teammate Ryan Hill who just you know signed with uh, Hoka and is out in Flagstaff. You just launched High Gear Running, but what, what's going on? What's new with you? Yeah, man, it's been... I guess 2020 has just been a big uh, uh, kind of changing year for a lot of people. I mean, a lot's been going on this year um, in the sport uh, and as well for me personally, like, I guess kind of if I roll it back a little bit, uh, you know, the trials back in February were kind of like this, this big point for the last four years, as it is for everyone in the sport. And um, I think as I transitioned to the marathon in the last four years of my career, like that, the reason I did that was because I was hopeful to, to make an Olympic team and to end my career that way. Um, and so like the trials was kind of like everything. I obviously I needed to, to become a marathoner and like figure that out and, and, and actually like be, be a little more seasoned at that, at that uh, particular distance. But, uh, so that's why I, I kind of four years ago made that shift from, okay, I did track for the first six years of my career and then I switched to marathon with totally the aim of, of like making that team. And I think at the time in 2016, when Jerry and I were sitting down talking about it, it was like, there's kind of a, an opening. I mean, you had Ga- you have Galen 
who's starting to establish himself. He hadn't even really established himself when we started talking about uh, the switch, but that was kind of the impetus for that. So it was like the way I saw everything was that uh, in at the trials, like that was kind of be kind of it either way in terms of like really knowing what the net, like the four year trajectory was. So uh, unfortunately, the trials like went really poorly for me. Um, I had some stomach issues, had to drop out of the race. Um, and then two weeks later, uh, I get back home after a vacation with my family and COVID shuts the world down. Um, and, and particularly North America, I guess, at that time. So um, I didn't I didn't really know like what to do. Like at that point, I was like, well, I could try to like, uh, you know, put another race on the calendar. But then everything just kept getting canceled. So um, it gave me a lot of time to sit and think and evaluate and really uh, decide like where do I want uh, my career uh, trajectory to kind of go at this point. And um, so I guess backing up one of the things that I, I knew all along that I wanted to do um, when I was done was uh, to uh, start working in um, footwear product creation. Like that's that's like my, my, my passion. Like I was one of the athletes that kind of Nike uh, brought along with like breaking two. I was a pacer at breaking two. Um, I was one of the first athletes to like wear what became the 3% like before, I mean, before like anyone even knew what that was and, and changed the whole game, whole game um, as far as shoes go and like the industry. And, and obviously people have different uh, feelings about that. So I guess I started to work uh, in 2020 on uh, making that, trying to put one foot out a little bit and trying to step into the next phase of my career. And so I worked on a couple of projects over the summer and into the fall. And that's kind of what I've been spending a lot of my time on is uh, working on some of these footwear specific projects. It's so, so. interesting because it's like, uh, it is that sort of that takeoff point that just happened, you know, at this crossroads of, of, of your career, we see someone like Lopez Lamont, who's been like your training partner for years, like, kind of maybe timing it perfectly where um, he's still got, I think maybe, you know, another year or two of that peak like performance era and the technology is, is going with him. So where do you think it caught you? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think for me, it enabled, it was a, a big enabler of my marathon career. Like I, I think about like, if I had tried to run a marathon in, in, in a streak six or whatever, or streak four, or streak five, it's like hard to kind of contemplate what that experience would be like, especially with it, with it, like for me being an athlete coming from the track, right. Where like, you know, for most of my career, like 5k and 10k were kind of like my sweet spot. The marathon is just like, as you know, like it's a totally different like it's a different event entirely. Like it, it fits sort of within like this, this, you know, USATF, like what is, what is like high level running, but it's like, it's totally off on its own. Um, and so the, the technology um, I think is, is want for one, I think one of the greatest benefits of it, I think is it, it will extend people's careers. Like the pounding that a marathoner takes, maybe, maybe like, you know, with the new technology and shoes and the, and the foams that people are using now, it's like maybe they can run 15 marathons instead of 10 in their career, or maybe they can even run 20. So I think, um, you know, for me, it was like, this is, this is a way where like, I can, I can like extend my career into my thirties pretty easily. Um, and then shift to a distance that is really foreign and different, uh, for a guy that's like been known for mostly like 5k his whole career. So at 33, where do you sort of see, I mean, like 
because this four year project in the in the sort of like the marathon and dipping into it like it just wrapped up with the with the trials is is the next move to kind of like keep the olympic dream like alive and and go back to the track and make like a trials run or are you going to stick with the marathon yeah so i guess to 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 kind of just like uh drop a bomb here i i plan to to like to step away from um professional running uh and being my uh like like primary focus of life uh you know, I, I think Merber, like Merber, like so many, he, he is able to like compartmentalize things like so well in words. And I think he, he did a great job. Um, he's kind of like this, this generation's like Aristotle or something. And he did a great job of saying like, okay, like he's not, he's moving away from it being his primary uh, form of, of income. And, uh, and I'm doing the same thing. So, um, you know, this year, I think over the course of 2020, I was able to, to really decide, okay, I think I'm ready to finally like move away from running. Like I, you know, like I've done okay the last, you know, few years, but um, it's been one of those things where like, I'm ready to take on new challenges and see where I can contribute in different ways. Um, Does that mean like I never run a competitive race again? I don't, I don't know. Like, I think, I think that's too hard of a question to kind of unpack. I actually physically, I feel like, better than I have in a really long time because I've taken a a big step away from like Jerry's like, you know, grind, uh, you know, where it just beats you down. I mean, if you survive it, you run amazing, but if you don't, it's like, you're, you can be pretty tired after a little while. So I think, uh, that's a hard question to answer, but yeah, I'm, I guess in 2021, um, I am no longer part of the Bowerman track club professional group and, and no longer a Nike athlete. And so, um, that just took a little time to feel like I was ready to like say that publicly. I mean, I think people who know me pretty well have known that that's probably where I was headed this year. Uh, but, um, my passion for, uh, for product is is really come alive this year. And some of the teams that I've been able to work with at Nike, um, have just really kind of pushed me even further in that direction. That's awesome. And so like, it's funny because I did text Merber sort of after he posted his Instagram and I asked him sort of like, okay, so if I were to condense this into sort of a tweet, like, do I just say you retired, even though you just say you didn't retire? And then he's like, you know, it's day to day really with him when it comes to now, like how he's going to approach running. There's some days where maybe he still feels that urge to, you know, go to the well and crank out a hard workout. Um, and then there's going to be days where that's not the priority. He was, I think the way he phrased it to me was like, I don't want to say I'm retired. And then, you know, maybe in a year or two go out and run like a two fourteen marathon. And he's like, that's just kind of where his head is at. And it changes sort of day to day. Have you already started to feel that? Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I, I really, after the trials, I took a long break and, and then I just like never came back from it in, in some ways. But, but then I started like, so I was cycling a lot. I think a lot of, I think Merber did the same thing. It's like, what do I, what's like my new thing? Because I'm like, I'm an adrenaline, I mean, I guess I'm an endurance junkie and an adrenaline uh, seeker. And you kind of, I mean, you, physically I was like missing that feeling of like pushing myself. Um, and so I started riding a lot in the spring and into the summer. Um, and then as the weather has turned here in Portland, uh, my riding, like the desire to ride in like 45 degrees and rain is like not really that high. So I started running more and then I was like, wow, I feel great, you know? Um, and, um, I run about right now I'm running about five, five, six days a week. Um, nothing crazy mileage wise. And then I was like, 
you know, I feel really good and I kind of miss pushing harder. So I started to like, just, yeah, like, I mean, like, I guess Kyle said, it's like, you, you, you kind of crave uh, the harder end of, of the training uh, spectrum. So I started to do just like some casual like workouts on my own. And um, yeah, that's been a really good outlet. I mean, I have a ton of time. I'm doing most of my work from home. So I still have a lot of time to be able to like go out and, and, and do something. And, and uh, I guess we'll see where it goes. Like, does it, does it, do I, will I get the bug to, to do something again? Maybe I don't want to be one of these people that like, is like, I don't know, like, trying to like still do it and it's like kind of like i don't know borderline embarrassing uh i don't want to do that but i do think it's okay to like still have goals and i mean athletically and um i mean i i even have done some trail running like with a with a really new a good new friend uh, that's a friend of a mutual friend but his name is dylan bowman he's a he's a north face uh, uh trail runner and like that's been a kind of a cool like different outlet too i mean just seeing i did a 30 mile run which is the longest run i've ever done with him uh right before christmas so i mean it's like i'm a little scattered right now with, with as far as that goes but uh it's been a fun way to just like experiment um with different things so i always find it just really funny that now going forward anytime you sort of like do enter like that next marathon or something like that it's so hard to because it's like it's going to be a different Andrew Bumbleo showing up to that starting line. Same, but like this PR will always get attached to, to your name. Uh, it's just like when I see the like Chicago marathon elite start list come out and Joan Benoit Samuelson is, is doing it like annually to, you know, try and break three hours, which like she's got an impressive like streak of doing decade after decade. Um, but it's like, she's at the top of the, uh, like toward the top of the list of PRs because it was set in the eighties. And so it's like, how do you sort of mentally start to think about letting sort of that competitiveness go and just doing it for fun? Yeah. I mean, and again, like, I don't maybe, I guess I like haven't made the decision to completely let the competitiveness <laughs> go. And I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I, I think of, I, so a great person to kind of like, uh, I show as an example is like, there, there's a, there's an athlete, um, that, that Elliot Heath coaches out here. Her name is Carrie Dimoff. Um, she, she, you may be familiar with her. She's a full-time, uh, Nike employee. She has, uh, two kids at home. And uh, she made the world championship team in the marathon. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to think about an athlete like that, or, or for example, like Sarah Vaughn, who, who decided like she has, you know, she's a real estate agent, she's got four kids at home, and she's like still like running at a really high level. I don't know if that's me, like maybe it's not. Like I don't know if I ever try to do anything like that. But I think the interesting thing is, I've had 10 years of being able to prioritize running over anything else like work-wise. And so like I could go home, take naps. Like I've had everything like the best of the best, like being in with Bowerman and like having everything at my, my fingertips. I think it's an interesting paradigm shift to be like, okay, like if I don't have all of those things and I'm not doing it that way and I'm working a full-time job, like, is it possible to still run at a really high level? I think it is like, I mean, especially in the marathon, I, I see some of these, uh, the guys, you know, they even ran at the marathon project. Some of them, I mean, many of them have like Marty Hare is like, he has like a job, like he's a doctor. Like, like I, so it's really interesting to, to like shift mentally that way and think like, 
okay, what can I do if I still want to do it uh, at a high level, even with kind of these added other things that many people would be like, well, that's going to make you worse. But I don't know, like, maybe it's a different way of, uh, of approaching it. And, and, and maybe it's, it's something that like, actually, in the end, elevates your performance. I don't know. One of my favorite formats to do on this podcast is sort of like this exit interview. Um, I've done it with Weeding, done it with like Leo Manzano and, uh, you know, th- these guys after they announced sort of the, their retirement is we'll take a deep dive into sort of the, the high points and, and some of the low points of, of their career. Um, and so you just spurred this exit interview format on me. And, and so I'm, I'm into it. But before we get to sort of taking this dive into your career, uh, I want to hear more about uh, High Gear and this coaching venture that that you're about to also embark on because i guess from you've had all these influential awesome coaches throughout your career jerry schumacher included how do you sort of now package just sort of all that knowledge into this next chapter that you also want to do yeah i i would say like the inspiration for for high gear really came from um it's been there like I think deep deep in my mind that I would love to work with athletes after I was done in some capacity. I think, you know, as you slowly start to to think about what that might look like, I realized I don't I didn't want to be an NCAA coach. Like I didn't want my my coaching to be like my full-time job where um it's all that I'm doing. Um but I also realized like the idea of working with athletes of all like ages and ability levels was something that was really appealing to me. And I think this was really like kind of cemented uh, this summer when I was, uh, I helped out with the um, Bowerman Track Club uh, summer training program. That was great. It was, uh, we had like 300 high schoolers um, do a four week online training program uh, via Zoom. And we were using Slack as well as as another like platform of communication. Um, And it was just like an incredible, incredibly powerful experience. And I, I think, I always just kind of thought an online coaching um, or that relationship would just be very uh, surface level and it wouldn't really give you the same things that um, an in-person coaching experience would be. But I think what I took away from that experience was like these, the kids were so dedicated and it meant so much to them. And I think, you know, obviously being in a COVID world, it heightened that, but I was really impacted by like how much could be taken away and, and, and brought to their own running with an online format. And so um, that's kind of like high gear was born out of, of that idea, as well as I, I had started to work with uh, three or four local Portland athletes this, this spring or sorry, this summer and fall um, and see, had seen their like success, kind of their progression. And it's, it's addictive, man, to like watch someone, um, and, and none of these athletes are like really, um, they're not elite athletes. They're just, you know, they're people who just want to get better. They want to get faster. And so um, that was really inspiring just to see them progress and, and grow as, as, as runners and, and, and see them like, you know, PR, like even in situations where it's like there, are, there isn't a race to have. So um, I think every single one of the athletes I coached PR. So that was like, it's a cool thing to be a part of. And so um, I had time, I had some time on my hands and, uh, another thing of 2020 is like, I, I heard someone say, it's like, if, if there's a, something you've always wanted to do and you don't do it this year, you're just, you just either don't want to do it or you're, or you're not going to do it. And so I was like, well, if not now, like, I, I don't know, it won't happen. So, uh, yeah, I went ahead and like started to do some like market research and 
and uh, just to see what else was out there and kind of came up with my own format and website and uh, yeah, launched it on January 1st and uh, it's highgearrunning.com. Uh, please, please come to the website and, and check it out and see if there's something, you know, that, that really speaks to you. But uh, I'm really excited about, you know, just that is kind of a, a complimentary thing to, to my whole, like just kind of focus going forward this year. Yeah. Does the name come from anything? It does. And it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's, it, it's really a deep nerdy thing to myself. Um, I, I've been a, a fan of, of, of a band uh, that many people may, may or may not know, Fish, uh, and they're, they have a song uh, that is, uh, it's called Run Like an Antelope, and it, it, uh, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line in the song that, that's like, shift, your, shift the gear shift to the high gear of your soul, run like an antelope out of control. And for some reason, like even since high school, like that has been like, like, like that that little like line is just like part of like my mantra as an athlete like run like an antelope out of control i just love it it's like so goofy and weird and 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 silly but i thought high gear is like you know the name it refers to something that like is like who i am but it also like has meaning in the running world right like you know you talk about like going faster you, you shift up to the high gear and you, you go faster so um, yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of the impetus for it. And, and I'm probably going to get flamed hard, uh, by, by people for it, but whatever, like it, it's me and, um, yeah, I, I love it. I think, I think I'm really happy with the way everything kind of turned out with the, with the branding and stuff. So. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, and it's such a cool, uh, little, I guess, in, a piece of inspiration, uh, behind the name. So you did mention it's been part of your identity for years. So let's start right at the very beginning. Growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, originally though a soccer player, right? Uh, so right. how did you find running and like when did cross country enter the fold? Yeah, so in, uh, I guess like in sixth grade, I was in class. Um, I had my English teacher was like helped with the cross country team and she brought in like a box of like jerseys, but for the middle school team in whatever it was, 1998, like those were shirts, like cotton heavy shirts that definitely were used in the eighties, like for the team, like, the, like they, they'd been there forever and they, they had like a residual smell to them. Um, <laughs> but anyway, she was like, Hey, like, does anyone want to like do cross country and like run the race this afternoon? I was like, yeah, like I had to do it. So I called, I remember calling, I had to go to the office. I called my parents to like tell them, Hey, don't pick me up at school. Pick me up at this other school where this race is happening. My parents were probably like, what, what in the world is going on? So that's how it happened. And, you know, I think that like, I would not have found, I would not have found running without her um, or without, you know, kind of the coaches that I had, you know, spurring me on to, to continue with it. Cause I was like, I'm a soccer player. Like that's who I am. You know, I'm going to be awesome at that. So. How competitive was the high school cross country scene and track scene in Nashville at the time? Not, not very. And that's, what's really interesting about like thinking about it, like then versus now it's like, it's totally different. Um, I think that, you know, the internet actually was really coming of age, like when I was in middle school. Um, I mean, it, it had been around for a while, but like middle school and high school, it's like, that's when Dystat like was really big. And so 
um, I was, I think I was lucky enough too to like also have like Dathan and, and Selensky, they were a couple years older than me. Um, and so like they were doing amazing things and all that was like, you know, on the internet for me to see. And so I think between like that and just like my own personal, like kind of like mini successes that I was having, like that, that was like kind of how I started to get really interested in it. You end up setting the state record in the 3200, 846.47. Uh, by the way, I'm not spitballing these things off of just notes. Your Bowerman Track Club like uh, bio on the, on the page has done the research for me, and we're using it as sort of a format here. You decide to go to Georgetown. How did that come about? Yeah, Georgetown was – it's interesting. Like, I, I, I guess the, the real big connection was that, was that um, my high school coach ran for Pat Henner at James Madison. So I, there was kind of already a pre-existing relationship. But, but Chris, like, when you have a coach in your living room on the first day they're allowed to be there, like, you know, the first day when recruiting opens and he's there at, like, noon. And I'm in high school, so I probably just rolled out of bed, you know. And, and he's, like, there, and it's like, wow, like, he really – you know, he's really, he really wants me and he really wants me here. And that's like, when you're 17, like that's really impactful. So I think between that, and then I had a great visit, like Georgetown's a beautiful campus. Um, I knew like being in a, a different place, like outside of the South was, was kind of an appealing thing and um, being in a bigger city and um, DC has uh, amazing running. Like it's, I, you can talk to a lot of people like DC, I think is the best like big city, uh, running environment that there is like in terms wow. of <laughs> yeah i mean we're talking big cities though like you can't you can't throw out like these like mid-sized towns like i'm talking like big city like it would just dc destroys portland like as far as like quality of places to, to run so did georgetown at that point have because it was post gags right and so like there's a little bit yeah. of history there to behind that program Absolutely. So like Georgetown has this like is steeped in in middle distance, like greatness and culture, right? You have like John, you know, you have Steve Holman and John Troutman in the 90s uh, under Gags and um, Gags had just left maybe two years before like I was getting recruited. So there was like this element of like history and, and, and prestige there um, that was, you know, that was appealing as well. And um, so uh, and you had like Chris Lukesic was there and, um, you know, he was a guy too, kind of in that two or three years older than me class of, 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 of athletes. That was like someone who I looked up to. Where did you sort of want to take the sport? Because it's like you, once you start to taste a little bit of success, that's when you really feel like you can take this post collegially and professionally. When was that moment for you? I think, I think around my, I think I kind of always wanted to, um, you know, like I was one of the best high school, like I was, a, I was the top recruit of my high school class. So I, I always believed in my own like ability uh, to be like one of the best, I think. And my first two years at Georgetown didn't re really reflect that. I feel like I, I struggled a little bit. I was injured a fair amount and just like kind of had frustrating results, but um, things started to really click my junior year at Georgetown. I ran 358 in the mile. Um, I was second at you know, in the 3K indoors um, and got, you know, was, I anchored our, I think our DMR to like three, you know, 354 anchor or something like that. And so it was like, that's when I was like, okay, like now things are starting to match up a little bit with like my, my expectations for myself. And um, I think, yeah, by my junior year, senior year, I felt like I was capable of running at the next level. I did see that on your Atlanta 2020, like mm -hmm. I think 
before the trials on that profile, you did mention that one of your favorite memories is breaking four for the first time in 2008. Can you recall sort of that, that race and, and that memory for us? Yeah. So we're, it's, 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 it's when, it's when breaking four in college was still kind of a big deal. Like that's changed. <laughs> like now you have to break four just to make it to NCAA. So we have to like kind of set the stage of like, this is still a big accomplishment, like to do this. So um, I, yeah, we went to Yale indoor an indoor meet at Yale. Um, they have a pretty nice, they, at least at the time, they had a pretty nice track up there. And yeah, my, I think Henner knew that I was like capable of doing it. Um, so we set the race up to be pretty close to like four flat pace. Um, but I remember being behind one of my teammates who was rabbiting the race and it was like, I just felt amazing. I was like, I knew I had like all kinds of running uh, in me that day. And so I think I passed him. Like I, like I went around the rabbit before it was time. Um, it was one of those types of days where it's like, you just, you're kind of on one. And um, yeah, like I saw, I think I remember seeing the clock and like with, a, with 200 meters, with one lap or 200 meters to go and knew like I was going to do it. Uh, it was just kind of a matter of how much at that point. Um, so that was like, and it was like, I was coming off this like, you know, injured, like previous season. It was just like, there's a picture of me like crossing the line. It's like all of that frustration is just like coming out in the moment. Um, so it was, it was pretty special. It was a lot of fun. I'm looking at the all time sub, uh, sub four club on the track and field news list. Do you know what number you are for the Americans? I think, I, I think I'm 499. You're 299. Or 299. Okay. Yeah. 299. I knew I was like under, I knew I was 99 something. 299. Okay. There yeah. You go. There's five, 560 plus, I think, members now. Yeah. So it's like, has the shine like come off the sub four a little bit? <laughs> it absolutely has. And we joke, like that's, that's a joke on the Bowerman, like on the men's like elite team, like about your Bowerman pro team. It's like, like Dan Hewling, I think was actually like the, 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 the starter of this joke that it like, it actually like doesn't mean anything now. And it's, it's like kind of a fake, it's like a fake level of, of like ability. <laughs> so it's like, basically Dan was like, I can break for anytime you want me to like right now, I'll do it. Like, and of course he was kid, you know, of course he was kind of kidding, but like, and then we also had this thing where it's like, if you do it in Seattle at the Dempsey it doesn't count. So if that's your only sub four, like forget, like you can take, you can basically take your name off the list. You have to do it <laughs> like you have to do it on like a 200 meter indoor track or outside. Well, the other thing too, I remember from the summer broadcast of the inner squad meets was that is it, wasn't it also like a big thing breaking 340 uh, for the 1500 on, on the team because Mo hadn't done it up until this, this summer. Oh yeah. It was a total, like, I think Woody also. So like the two of the three guys that had run under 13 on the team, I guess, had not broken 340. So it was like, they were getting total, like, yeah, just total, totally destroyed for their, their lack of ability in the 15, even though they had run, you know, 10 seconds faster than most of us or, or so in the, in the 5k. So uh, and so like very interestingly enough this is kind of like playing off of like you know incorporating time travel into this so if someone were to tell you the times that people are running nowadays like maybe with the exception of like joshua chepta guy when you were coming out of college or maybe in those first couple of years as a pro like what, what would you have thought oh i yeah i don't know that i would have believed it especially like for um the 
you know, kind of just like the, the, what Americans are doing or what people in North America are doing. It's, it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. Um, you know, I think it's a combination of, um, perhaps better training and preparation, like from a younger age. Like I think the kids that are like 19 and 20 now, like have just trained better, like from earlier than, than like a lot of people, like, you know, my age or older. Um, and then, I mean, we can't ignore the fact that like, we talked a little, we've talked a little bit about the shoes, the pro like the, the like, footwear has gotten exponentially better in the last five years. Um, and you're seeing, uh, you know, some of the learnings from um, the roads, like with, you know, Vaporfly and Alphafly start to move to the track now. And that's only going to continue. And I think that that plays a role too. And it doesn't just play a role on race day. It plays a role like in your training as well. Like if you can train, if you can train at a higher level and be more protected, like throughout the course of your buildup or for whatever race you're going after, it's like the, it, you're just in such a better place if you can come to the next day and not a sore. So um, I think those, I think those are two things that, have, and then I think the the third piece maybe is like just the groups. Like now it's like, you're not a pro really, unless you're in a group, there's very few people trying to do it on their own. Um, I think people are just much better supported um, whether it's, you know, Bowerman or, you know, NAZ elite or whoever it's like the support is just, I think a little bit better for across the board. Now I know it's part of your job, but like sort of, do you see any sort of line that should be sort of drawn when it comes to just how much tech plays a role in sort of these performances where you do want to keep a lot of the credit sort of on the athlete. And, you know, there are the limitations set in place by world athletics, but uh, like, what, where do you draw the line personally? Yeah, I think it's really important to have a line um, because at the end of the day, what we want our sport to be is this pure measurement of, of fitness and toughness and grit and ability like against the other person, right? Or the other, the other people in the race. Um, now, I think that technology and improvement is inevitable and it's been a part of, it's been a part of our sport as well for, you know, decades. It just hasn't, it hasn't increased this exponentially, I don't think really ever, um, but at least not since I've been around it. And so I think giving a very specific framework for what the rules are and having a committee at World Athletics that under, they, they need to have people that really, really understand the sport, but also understand the technology. And I, I don't know if like that's been there completely yet of like having like experts who like really understand what's going on functionally. And maybe there is, but I just don't really know. I'm not, I don't know what World Athletics, who's on that committee, but I think you just, ideally you have both people who understand both really well, and then you find out what works for everyone. And then, and then companies have the license to innovate within that framework, right? So if it's 40 millimeters, like on, on the road, that like Nike and Saucony and Brooks can all go at it and try to figure out who in Adidas and figure who can make the best thing that fits within this framework. And I think that's healthy and that's good. And it pushes, it pushes both the companies forward pushes the sport forward um again like athletes are really rely like re really rely on shoe companies to pay them at least that's how it, it works right now and so 
if it's a good thing for shoe companies, hopefully it is a good thing for athletes, but we just have to figure out something that makes it as even of a playing field as it can be, at least starting out. And then companies can decide how much money they want to put into like figuring out how to make something better. And that's, that's just how, that's how, that's how like capitalism works, you know? Um, so, yeah. I want to come back to sort of, you know, your role sort of in this, you know, shoe evolution, because you did play, you know, a role in the 4%, you know, kind of rollout and testing. Um, but let's go back to sort of connecting with Jerry Schumacher for the first time coming out of college. Uh, how did you make that connection? With Jerry? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, I, I, so I was recruited by Jerry when he was at Wisconsin. So and we, Jerry, Jerry, like, doesn't like to be in the public eye, but he is a great talker. Like, he is really good. Um, and as a recruiter, like, he was amazing. Like, he would get me on the phone for, like, 45 minutes, and we'd just chat, and he would always be really awesome to talk to and really interesting. And so I really liked him in that process. And I think he, I think he must have, like, gotten the same from me. So you fast forward four years later and we still like, we had a relationship, you know, during that time. And I think, um, my coach, uh, in college, like was really helping Pat Henner was really helping me to like help figure out what I wanted to do afterwards. And it was pretty clear. He knew that I didn't, I wasn't going to stay at Georgetown or stay around DC. And it was like, what can, what's the best situation for you going forward? And I think he also saw that it was with Jerry just, you know, out in Portland cause Jerry had just moved here. And so, um, I think between Pat, like between Pat and myself, like we started to kind of talk to uh, Jerry um, and just like see like if Andrew is like going to do this, like what does he need to like essentially what does he need to accomplish like you know his last you know couple seasons to be able to be considered by Nike, and so that's kind of how that started. So it started before I even like left school. So what was the ceiling that you sort of envisioned for yourself at that point? Was it sort of like Olympics? Cause it's only, you know, two years from, from there, you're two years removed from the 08 Olympics and then two years away from, from London. Obviously that seems to be something that had to have been on your mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I a hundred percent felt that I could join the group and start making world championship and Olympic teams. So, um, I mean, as as Selinski will tell you, like when I came in, like I I, I was like I'm like one of the few people that's ever dropped him in a workout. Like um, I was like fit and hungry, and like he was he was he was taking a break so and could come back, and you know he was out of shape or whatever. But he'll tell you like I'm the only one that's ever made him like throw up in a workout, right? Like so. What was the workout? I, uh, the workout was a fart lick. It was one of Jerry's like old. Uh, he, I don't know how much he does it now, but it was a, it was 500 on 100 off on the track for, uh, 10 miles. It's brutal. Like it is absolutely brutal. Cause the, like the, the, the difference in pace is, is so bad. And so if you're having a bad one, it, it's a really one that will expose you like halfway through. So, um, I think he just didn't have a great day and it was Halloween. I remember because then he was having people over for a Halloween party and he was like on the, he was like upstairs all night. <laughs> he was, he was miserable. So, um, I, that's a badge of honor that I still, I mean, it's like one of my career highlights for sure. So when you so kind of put us, since we were talking tech, 
2010, when you arrive and you signed with, with, with Nike, now you're being coached by Jerry. That's, you know, the lead up to you breaking out and running 316 for, for 5k. Um, right. What were you, do, what were you doing this in like sort of trainers and spikes and all that kind of stuff at that oh, point? Oh, good point. Yeah. Uh, I remember really like, as far as trainers go, I remember really liking the Nike elite, which like, if you can even remember that far back, like I loved that shoe. Um, but they were just starting to phase it out, I think, right around that time. Um, but then for for on the track, I was probably wearing just victories. Uh, but again, like it's so like it's so different now. It's kind of crazy to think back to. But yeah, like to get back to your question about like, was I thinking like to make the Olympic team in two years when I can't? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna do that. Like that's my goal. And I and this is the way I'm gonna do it by being with these guys who are also going to do it. Like you know, they had just swept, I think, in 09, like all the spots on the world team, right? You had Jager making his first one and then Selinski taking camps. Like, that's what I was going to do. I was like, I was going to be one of those guys in green running around the track and taking one of the spots. So that's, that's, that, that was the vision at least. And I feel like that just got ingrained into the Bowerman team culture where, you know, even in 16, you sort of look at the whole roster and the majority of the people made the team. Like it's, it's awkward if, if you, if you don't make the team, um, how, how much pressure goes into that when it comes to the beginning of one of those years where like, for example, it's 2021. Now you have a whole set of people there's some overlap in events. Some people choose to double and that kind of stuff. But there's you, at the end of the day, you have to recognize that there's only three spots per event. And, you know, you have your own group, but there's still studs out there who are not in your group who, you know, have a chance at those three spots. How do you mentally prepare yourself for, for, for that and just get used to that being the normal? Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's embedded in the culture, <clears throat> in the culture, excuse me. Um, I think that, um, I think that there's like, it's a different energy going into an Olympic year. So that fall preceding an Olympic year, definitely the workouts are noticeably like harder, um, but in, in kind of like a measured way. So it's not super obvious until you look back and you're like, wow, the last eight weeks of training has kind of been insane, you know? And we're only in October, November, uh, or, or November, December or whatever. So, um, I think there's just like a different energy and, um, I think there's a confidence and an expectation of like, we're going to take the spots. Like, hopefully I'm not the odd man out. Right. Um, <laughs> that's just kind of, I mean, it's not really said, but I think that, that it is just kind of there. And you look at athletes like Evan, you know, Evan Jager, who, like has just been so dominant in his event, um, you know, and then if you're a guy like, for instance, when Andy Bear was here, it's like, or Dan Hewling, it's like, well, I'm feeding off of like Evan's energy of like, he's going to make the team. So I need to, like, I'm going to also, or, or that's the mentality. I mean, if it happens, that's one thing, if it doesn't, like, you know, like whatever, but yeah, I think the same thing goes in all the events, but yeah, you're like, it's, it's this friendly thing. It's just like hard thing where it's like, you are looking at like the roster of people, especially now the team has grown and you're like, well, one of us is going to be devastated. Like one of us is going to leave and be like absolutely devastated. Cause like, that's been the focus for the last four years. And that's a hard thing to kind of like come to, but I, it also like, I think that's how you like that. That's how you get that qual. Like that's how you get the quality too, of like, of getting um, that type of performance out of yourself. So 
you kind of have to just like take the good with the bad, I guess, with that and, and, and know that like, there's a chance that you may get beaten by one of your best friends. And that's the reason you don't go to the Olympics. <laughs> so I want to touch on 2011 because you make the world championship team, you compete uh, in Daegu. And I'm pretty sure I asked Solinsky sort of what his takeaway was from that <clears throat> sort of race when you're up against, you know, the likes of a Kennedy Sabikele. And I think the one thing that I remember him saying was that you notice that when it, if the race starts off slow and, and it's a tactical championship race, there's going to come a point where it just feels like no one, no one is trying, but you listen to the breathing and mm-hmm. that's really where you get the sense that like the, the top contenders have it easy up until like they can flip that sort of switch. What is it that you remember about that first world championship experience and being on that stage? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a totally different um, level. And I think for me, looking back on it, it's one of those things where I, I actually was fourth at the the championships that year and I ended up taking Chris's spot. So I like had been racing differently, racing and training differently had I known all summer long that I was going to go to world. So um, when I got the call up from Jerry, it was like being like, Chris can't go like you're up. It was like, oh, okay. So there was a little bit of mental gymnastics to kind of switch, switch the mentality. Um, so unfortunately, I wish I had gone in like, I guess, fully dialed and prepared for that championship in terms of like doing everything I would have done. Um, had I known all summer, that's what I was planning to do. But, um, yeah, it was like, once you're in the arena, like you don't, you don't think about any of those things. Like you're just, it's like, it's just, it goes to like, you know, your natural, like competitiveness and and like what you normally do. So, um, unfortunately, like I was, I think I was one, I was the first guy not to make the final. Um, so it was a little bit of just like disappointment and, and bitterness, bitterness, like to not have had the chance, I guess, not bitterness towards anyone, just my, just the situation that like, it would have been nice to, to like fully prepare for that as well as I would have wanted to, um, because I was so close to making the final. And then once you get in the final, like to your point, like anything can happen. It's crazy. Like, I mean, championship racing is just such a different, um, experience than being in a diamond league and, and running, you know, twelve fifty pace from the gun. Like, I mean, I'm a guy that like, or at least at the time, like I had a big, like I had a good close and I was always pretty confident in my ability to finish out races. So, um, you know, like if I'd made the final, who knows, maybe, maybe I would have been in, you know, top six or something like that. And that would have been like a really a special achievement. But again, it's like timing is everything and, and you never know how it's going to go in the sport. And um, I think that's why on a tangent to be like, man, you just have to like, you really have to relish the moments that are good because like ask anyone that's done this like it may not be you know it's like it may not be there the same way that you thought it was going to be and so anyway great experience it was it was amazing to be like on that stage for sure so yeah i'm just getting my timeline now correctly in my head where it was Solinsky, i think 09 having that world experience really blossoming in 2010 and then sort of like injury striking and then you take the spot in 2011 that's what it was that that's right and it's been a while yeah we're talking like 10 years ago now it's kind of of crazy like when you when you think about it that way but no 
Well, well, the thing with Selinski and when we did the 10-year anniversary podcast on on his uh, Stanford run was sort of looking back at sort of injuries where I guess like a lot of blame got put on this dog for for getting him hurt and really changing sort of like the course of, of his career, which he then like, I guess, tried to clarify where he's like, no, no, I don't think you can put the blame too much on that sort of dog. But for you, injuries and like up until this point, how much of a role did they play or were you lucky to not have had too many? We're talking pre 2012. Yeah, no, I, so I, yeah, like college, I I mentioned, I think the first two years had like a lot of ups and downs with injury. Then like towards the end of my collegiate career, like was pretty good. Like it was pretty like healthy. Um, I got mono like at the end of my college career and that really derailed like my spring season um but then like as a pro like getting you joining jerry and being a part of the group in the fall of 2010 into 2011 and 12 like i went through a period of like great health and um yeah like never never really had to like miss a lot of time and and i was it's kind of interesting because i was training at such a higher level too so um luckily i think just having like like as i mentioned before some of those resources and modalities of like being able to see like PT and massage and like all these other things that like I didn't really have in college in the same way. Um, I think that was like a really nice thing. And also I'm 22 or three, like, you know, like the body like is, is feeling pretty good most of the time. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. So we'll hit on 2012 because that year you ran 316 at Peyton Jordan uh, for PR. And so it's like that, a performance like that definitely has you in the conversation for um, an Olympic team spot. And then, you know, having been on the world team the previous year, even more sort of like points, but then when it comes to the actual race and when it matters, we, let's see, we've got 346. you know, you won your, the first round of the, the trials and then the hardest spot to be in at an Olympic trials is fourth. Um, How much can you, can you dissect that race and, how much it stung afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, like I was going to that race, like so prepared, so confident, like ready to just like do it and like do, do the thing and make the team. And, um, I guess if I rewind back a little bit, like I knew Chris wasn't going to be running the 5k, like Solinsky was not going to be doing the 5k because he was still recovering from his surgery and injury and all that. So it was like a guy that had made it the year before, like that I knew personally, like wasn't doing it. And I don't think a lot of people knew that other than like, the people right close to, to the, to the program. And so I knew there was kind of a, an open spot. Like you had, you had Galen um, and, and Bernard Lagat, and I knew Lagat would, would make the team. Like as long as he was showed up, he was going to make it. And so, um, I, you know, and then I think the last minute Lopez uh, or not the last minute, but like the last few weeks going in, it was like, is Lopez going to run the 1500 or is he going to run the 5k? And then Jerry and, and Lopez made the decision to do 5k. And again, like going back to like the discussion of like the way teammates are, it's like, I was like, Oh, like, okay. Like that stinks. Like I'm going to have to beat him too. But like, I think I can, you know, like, I think I can still, I mean, I can still do it. You have to like believe in yourself. Like it's just going to be harder. And so, um, yeah, I don't remember a whole lot about the early stages of the race. Um, I remember like being very like calm though and controlled and like confident. And I do remember like by the time we got to like a lap to go, like the four of us started like Legat, Rupp, 
um, Lopez and myself kind of had separated ourselves as like the four guys probably that were going to make it and, and it was going to be a big finish. Like it was going to be a big last 400 meters. I didn't anticipate just how big it was. I mean, Galen had never closed a race like that, like ever. I, I mean, he, he, he won the race and like set the Olympic trials record. And I had never seen him close out a race that fast. Um, I don't remember, like, you'll have, like, I, I'm going to say the wrong number for how fast he ran the last 400 meters, but it was quick. Um, and yeah, like it's strong, you know, it kind of started to string out on the backstretch. And then I think around 200 meters to go. So like maybe it was 150, 200, like I started to feel people pull away and it was like, it was kind of getting out of reach. And there's this picture of me, like the taken around the steeple pit area where I just have this like look of like, like I'm working really hard, but there's like a bit of like sadness and panic almost that's setting in of like, it's getting away and there's nothing I can do about it. And it's like, when I look at that picture, like I'm just, it's like kind of devastating because it's like, even now it's a hard thing to like, to think about. Cause you know, you make that first Olympic team and it, it would have probably changed a lot about my career, like going forward. Um, you know, it's such a defining thing. Like you're either an Olympian or you're not, and there's no, there's no middle ground, like fourth place doesn't count for anything. And so um, other than just that you were close. And so, uh, yeah, I finished the race and, um, a lot of people from my community had come to watch and, um, I went, to, I had to go to drug, I had to go to team processing as the alternate and drug testing because you're fourth. And so you're sitting through all of that. Everyone else is happy, like, like congratulating each other and so excited to be an Olympian. And I'm just like in the worst mental, just sadness I've been in a really long time. And, um, I remember like leaving drug testing my family like it took me a while because it's like all that stuff takes a long time and I remember going and uh like walking out of drug testing and seeing uh like my high school coach for some reason had just like been like he was there like hadn't left the stadium yet and it was just like I like we like and there were a few other people there like I embraced him like gave him a hug he gave me a hug and it's just like I just like I like broke down in tears like I just was so sad like it was just like such a, a hard thing because I got really close um but didn't quite do it and um yeah it, it's one of those things like it took me a while to get over uh it took me elite like a while uh to get kind of over that um athletically I think and um Luckily, like now, like I don't think about it too much. <laughs> it's ten years ago, and it's eight years ago, and um, it's one of those things that that would have been nice and, and a nice way to like start my career, I guess, as a pro. But um, you know, also like this is kind of what you kind of sign up for as an athlete, right? So, yeah, I mean, every four years, like that's just like the the hardest one to watch. Um, you know, I, yeah. especially in two thousand in two thousand sixteen, I I for Sports Illustrated I wrote something about just even like the financial impact that that has, because once you have that Olympic, you know, Olympian title to your name, like it just opens some doors, um, even for like the next year, diamond league appearances and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it's, and it's just gut wrenching to, to watch the reactions afterwards. I mean, it kind of makes me curious. What's the first conversation like between you and Lopez after that? Oh, I, you know, I had nothing but love for Lopez after that. Like I gave him a huge congratulations. And I, I think for him, it's probably, it's like, it's probably more awkward for him. Right. Cause he feels like sadness for me. Right. But, um, for me, it was just like, I gave him, I, I think I saw him in the hotel lobby, gave him a huge hug and just like said, great job, man. Like, you know, 
Um, I think Lopez is one of those special people. Um, obviously everyone, like many people in the running community know his story and, um, you know, he's, he's, he's been one of the longest teammates I've had ever. And, um, I, I know him pretty well. And, um, I think, yeah, I just had, like, he's, I think he is one of the most talented athletes certainly I've ever been around. Like the guy's ability is, is incredible. Like his ability for speed, his ability for endurance, it just baffles me. What he's doing now in the last two years, like, I'm just like, Lopez is like the closest thing to a superhero that I've ever like really like been around personally. I mean, gosh, like everything that he's gone through in his life and then also like what he's able to do. And when he really puts his mind into something like he's unbeatable, really. I mean, he's incredible. So. So post 2012, we still got a couple more years on the track. We have the weird 2013 uh, like U.S. Uh, outdoor final which I remember that one was just chaos because the field was just so small uh, they weren't letting some people in who were there to race um, so then I think the following year 2014 you end up winning right the the the, the title out in Sacramento I was second so oh, second, I, okay. I Legat got me at the line of course like Legat has been this guy that's just like he followed me my whole career. Like then he moved up to the marathon when I did, I was like, I can't shake this guy. Like this guy is like, and he's so, you know, he's incredibly talented. I'm, I'm friends with him. Like, um, you know, but we've kind of like, it's a, he's a decade older than me, but we've had like the same like career in the U S in terms of following each other, like the whole way in the second, like kind of the second half of his career. Uh, so, um, but yeah, like, I. Again, like I made a move, I made a bid that I thought was a pretty good one in 2014 to win the race. And of course I knew he was going to come back on me, but I just thought I'd have another gear. And you never do with, when you're winning, you're running against the guy, you never have the other gear that you think you're going to have. So. so kind of when you put a bow on sort of your outdoor track career, like, I mean, it was yeah. consistently top five in the 5k for half a decade. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, there was consistency. Um, there was never the breakthrough that I really like thought could happen. Um, and I don't, I think I just, you know, it's like, you can only control what you do. Um, I think for the most part, I did everything that I wanted to. I didn't have a lot of like really terrible setbacks injury wise during that five years. And, you know, people were just better. Like, like I, I went through the buzzsaw of like, you know, uh, Legat obviously being at an incredible stage of his career still, um, you know, Rupp was doing unthinkable. Like I just did like the Galen Rupp that was from like from college. Like I knew he was very good, but like the things he was doing around that time of like running 350 indoors and like setting all these American records and, and running 1258 and the five, like things that like, and running really fast in the 10, it was like the 10K didn't surprise me as much, but some of the stuff he was doing at the shorter distances was just like, how's this happening? You know, like, how's this happening? So anyway, I'll just say that I think people were, people were just better, like during that time, like those two were like, you know, at the height of their powers on, on a track. And then occasionally you had someone like Lopez or Ryan Hill got in there ahead of me in 2013. <laughs> it's just like, I just kind of never got like that, that exact thing I needed to happen to end up in the top three. And I ended up on, I ended up fourth or fifth, like for five years. So, um, other than the off year when I was second. So. 
Um, before we move off your, your track career and move on to sort of the roads, I do want to touch on one particular race that has, you know, a chunk of your Wikipedia section, which is <laughs> the 2014 yep. U.S. Indoor uh, Final. I believe it was a 3K, right? With yes. uh, There was a bit of, uh, it was like this whole DQ fiasco that happened where um, Galen got impeded by Ryan Hill, I'm pretty sure. But right. it was sort of blamed on you and you were initially the person who was disqualified i guess kind of can you i'm trying to remember it best how do you remember that whole thing no i think that's accurate in terms of like what actually happened um you know to give a little context i feel you know at that point the the relationships between you know bowerman which we weren't even bowerman yet but jerry's group and alberto's group weren't wasn't like great like you know like we we saw we would run into each other at you know, all of the facilities at nike but like people weren't really like stopping to like you know exchange pleasantries like it was like a pretty icy relationship honestly and um i think that started in around 2011 and, and kind of maybe hit its peak around 2014 and i, I think I, you know after a little while i think things just kind of like went their course, you know, fall like, and, and things got maybe a little bit better, just like less icy. <laughs> but yeah, well, during that time, things were pretty like heated, you know, it was pretty intense. So. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a book out that came out recently. I haven't read it yet. Um, but like, it, how contentious was sort of like this rivalry from, from your perspective? Cause you were, I guess, on the Bowerman squad at the yeah. heart of it. And so like when it came right. to sort of, I, I don't know. Is it just like an extra motivation that you had to, you know, beat the Oregon project guys or like, I, I guess like, can you really, I guess like describe, describe what that relationship or, or rivalry was really like at, at that peak? Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that like other sports like do rivalries a lot better than, than <laughs> track and field. Totally. Um, like yeah, if you're a Yankee fan, which I think, are you a Yankee? Yeah, you don't like Die the Red Sox. Yankee fans. Hate the Red yeah, Sox. and you probably yeah. hate the Red Sox. Um, you know, if you're a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, you hate Duke. And if, if, you're, a ba- if you're a college basketball fan, you hate Duke. But um, other, unless you're a Duke fan. Um, but there's this, there's this thing where, like, I think other sports, like, really understand rivalry. And it's kind of okay to, like, dislike another team or like want to beat them, not even just because you want to beat everyone, but you want to beat them even more. And so I think there was an element of that for sure during those, during that time period. And um, I think it extended from some other, like for different reasons, like there was a lot of like that went into that, but that's, that's the, that was the environment. And it was not like, a thing where you go to the track we're both there at the same time it was not this like love fest where everyone was like chatting joking talking whatever like it didn't really exist at that time now i think that relationship like i said evolved as more organ projects like as pete like started to bring athletes on and like you have like a bigger squad of both and you didn't like you don't have as many ogs like me like that that was there during that time where things were really like more heated and so like I think it just kind of naturally like smoothed out a little bit more and it like just kind of, it took its course, like I said. And, but yeah, like 
I definitely like, I mean, I'll be honest, like I wanted to be anyone in Oregon project probably more than anyone else. And I didn't do it a lot. Um, you know, a lot, most of the time, I don't know if I ever beat anyone like a geek beat Galen, but like, I wanted to like, absolutely. And I think everyone else would say the same thing if they're honest. So was that 2014 us indoors, the angriest you'd seen Jerry. So I actually didn't. Yeah, he would, I mean, maybe not the angriest, but I, I wasn't actually in the room during the exchange. Um, like I, the athletes most, for the most part, I think had left and like gone, like it was, this was like after cool downs had happened and like I'd gone back to the hotel. So I didn't actually see what went down. I just heard about it later. Uh, but I'm sure like, had I seen it, I probably would be answering. Yes. It's the most like angry he's ever been. Yeah. Cause Jerry's just like a very even killed guy. Like he's not, he doesn't really get that angry or heated. Uh, I've never seen him that way. So. Did you ever develop a, a Jerry impression? Uh, because I've heard Ryan Hill has the best one. Ryan's is like, I, I, I don't even want to do it because Ryan's is so good. Like that anything else is just like a disservice to, to that impression. Um, it, it's interesting though, the impression kind of like turned, like Jerry's like voice kind of turned into like a caricature of like, almost like a like someone that sounds like they like a smoker <laughs> it's like it's like this like like deep raspy or it's like this raspy like kind of i guess wisconsin like heavy wisconsin raspy voice which he doesn't really sound like which is kind of funny too but ryan's is the best and so i don't i don't want to i don't want to do it do anything that uh would do disservice to that <laughs> Yeah, I'm recording with him next week, and so I'm for sure going to make him do the impression. He has to, yeah. If he doesn't, then yeah, like I'll we'll have to just berate him to do it. So, um, all right. So the shift to the roads. How easy or difficult was this conversation when it uh, when it came to you and Jerry um, discussing that around 2015? Because you know, it's funny when I hear Elliot Kipchoge talk about how you know, he's just a philosopher in anything that he, he talks about. He says, I had 10 years on the track and now I'm going to do 10 years like on the, on the roads. And it was just like that this guy had this master plan all along with Patrick saying, was it as poetic for you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And nothing that I do is anywhere close to as poetic as what Kipchoge does. Um, yeah. I, for me, it was like, um, it was a very pragmatic decision. Um, so in 2015, I developed a sports hernia um, that spring. And so um, it didn't, it became something that, that was lingering and didn't go away um, through PT, through efforts of PT and, and just trying to take time off. And so ended up having to have surgery um, in August of 2015. And so essentially missed that whole year. Like I, that was a year that just like, didn't I didn't do anything really other than just try to uh, fix that that problem and so um, then I started to do workouts to try to come back and then make it for the 20s you know be ready for 2016 and ended up developing I, I ended up getting a, a stress fracture in my back or my uh, sacrum um, and I think it was probably linked you know of course like you have surgery you try you try to like come back from that too quickly get a stress fracture um, so then it was like okay like the trials are out. Like this is like a hard reset moment of my career. Like, and Jerry was just like, let's just take time off, get fully healthy, get to where you're running well again. And then let's talk and figure out. 
So it was like, I took that entire 2016 summer to do that. Um, and I was just struggling. I, I kind of was struggling on some of the faster running. Like, like I just couldn't, like the, the, the speed sessions just weren't coming very easily for me. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I did, Chris, Derek, and I like kind of joined forces on um, a 10K plan for that fall. For that fall, so we were going to do since we both missed a lot of that year, we decided uh, Jerry kind of got us hooked up for this 10K race in Japan, um, in Tokyo, and so we um, we got going on that. Hold on, just a second. We got a baby. No worries. Guy. <laughs> um, we we got we got going on that and. Um, that was kind of the, the shift that took place uh, there in terms of like switching from track to then, to then road. Mm -hmm. I remember sort of like that exact period, which was like 2014, 15, there's just a general excitement about Selinski moving up to the marathon and that, you know, he was going to resurrect like, you know, that career. I think there was even like the whole flow track, like documentary um, done on him. Uh, and this this comeback that was going to happen when it came to the marathon. And I think Tegan Camp was right there with him. Was it, were you also like looking forward to getting just dragged along with those, you know, two guys had been like your closest training partners for years to just go along the same sort of trajectory as them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I always like the way Jerry's training uh, was back in the day was like very like strength heavy, like even more than it is now for sure. Because um, I think Jerry kind of just evolves based on like, you know, what's working, like he's trying new things. I mean, I think that's what makes him a great coach is like this, the way he evolves in his, his thinking and, and what, what he wants to try with different athletes. And so Chris had so much success uh, with like some of that big, heavy strength uh, training. And I, I seem to show some aptitude for it, um, you know, in, in that training early on, even in my career, like that we were doing in the fall. So I think, I think in the back of my head, after doing some of that stuff, I realized like, you know, I probably would eventually move to the roads and want to try the marathon like later in my career. Um, so I guess it was kind of like the seed had been planted early on and I, it happened earlier than I thought it was going to. Uh, but, uh, you know, just because of the injury that, but that kind of became the hard reset of my career. Like, well, I guess if not, if not uh, now, then it will happen, you know, it may never happen. So I think, again, kind of making that, that hard decision in 2016 to be like, Okay, I've seen I've seen uh, Matt do it. I've seen Selinski do it. Um, like this seems to be my time. And there's it seems like uh, you know as far as the marathon goes at that time, it was just like there was kind of an opening. Like there just wasn't really anyone that had established themselves as like the guys. Um, and so I thought, well, you know that could be me. Like I can do that. I can. I know I can run two ten. And and if I run two ten, that at that time it was like that's going to be good enough to make the team. Was what I was thinking. So. Yeah. As someone who was in the trenches with Selinski for the longest time, uh, it's, it's the big what if. We never got to see that, that marathon. Had everything have, had gone right with him, what, what do you think he could have run at that time? Or just like in, in uh, like the perfect yeah. 2012-ish like era. So we're not oh, giving man. him 4% yet. <laughs> right. And Chris would have really benefited from the 4%. We all know that. Um, uh, <laughs> So, and he, he won't mind me saying that. Um, I think, I think, and he would have been a big fan of the Alpha Fly, but I, I think that um, Chris, 
at least if you take like his ability in the 10K and you transfer that to like what he could have done on the roads and the amount he was running, I mean, he, I don't, I think it's hard for people to understand just how much training he was doing. Like he was running 120 miles of, of, of Jerry miles, but, but the way Chris was running those miles, he was probably running 135 miles a week. And he was doing all of the track training that the rest of us were doing. And I was doing it off of 90 miles a week. And so he's doing that intensity off of that volume. So I, I have to think that, and his tough, just like his ability to be tough and endure, like, and if he'd been healthy, he's a 206 guy for sure. Like, I mean, he, I, I mean, maybe he doesn't do it the first time or the second time, but I got to think if he had like had a chance to do it like properly and over the course of time, he's, he's one of the best Americans, certainly. I mean, Galen has run 205, 205. Like, he, I mean, I don't, I think they're very, fairly similar. Um, and I think Chris probably makes that jump too. And um, especially if he'd had like, like to your point, if he had had the, the shoes. <laughs> so to like touch on your marathon career, Debut in Tokyo, 2017, 213. You go to Chicago that fall, 214. And then in 2018, this is the crazy Boston Marathon. You end up finishing fifth, actually. So incrementally, you're, right. you're, you're sort of taking cracks at solving the marathon. From those first three tries, what did you learn about the event? That maybe, I guess, did you garner a respect for it? Because it's, it's like not one that you oh, yeah. knocked out right away. <laughs> No. Yeah. I mean, and still like, I still don't know that I've knocked it out the way I feel like I, I could, um, you know, and so it's, yeah, there's this absolutely this respect. It's, it's a behemoth. It's like, um, you know, I, I often kind of compare it to golf, oddly enough, like golfers are playing the course as much as they are playing against each other. Right. Like Tiger Woods, they had to like change the courses because Tiger was like too good on the court on those courses. Right. And so I think, the marathon, as much as you were racing your competitors, you were, you were competing against the distance. Um, and so you have to have a healthy respect for it. And I think I did have a healthy respect, uh, you know, going into it. I knew it was going to be difficult. Um, but yeah, maybe just didn't, didn't know exactly how difficult it is. And I think you learn so much each time you do it. So like, you know, 214, that was just like to go out and do one basically and finish. Like it, that was the plan. And then, but then I think the, the next one in Chicago was like, oh, I thought I was ready to like do a lot better than I did, you know, but I still only ran, I still only ran like 214 again. So it was like, hmm, like what, what do I need to add to like my, you know, skill set or, or whatever to be able to do this better next time. And I, I think I started to chip away. I think I have started to chip away at that. And it would be interesting just to have a few more goes at it to see like what, what was possible in terms of like where do I find my line of, of like where, how fast I can get. And I think you're, you're kind of seeing that with guys at the marathon project recently, like guys like that. I'm, I think I'm fairly similar to at least in the marathon, like Noah Drotti just read two and nine. Like that's huge. That's a big breakthrough for him. And I'm so happy for that. He's a really good guy. I'm so happy he did that. And it's like, it's hard not to be like, wow, man, like, you know, like, those are the guys I was kind of like running against like the last couple, couple years in the marathon. And it would be fun to like, keep, keep that going. Um, obviously like, again, it's just like timing in the sports, like, you know, it's, it's all fleeting and, and, and you just have to kind of strike when the iron is hot and take advantage of the opportunities when they're, they're there. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like looking at the results. I see the results of the 2019 Chicago Marathon, which is where you ran your 210. Um, right. And it's like, you see the results and you're, you're very curious right after. It's like, was that just like a really fast day for too many people? Like, what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? And now over time, you start to see the fruits of it where it's like Jake Riley makes an Olympic team. Uh, yeah. Noah Drotty runs 209. Um, so it's like, it's it, over time proving itself like, no, no, no. The guys who did that are still very talented. Yeah, no. And that's cool. It's cool. Cause like, I think that like people were excited about the American men at Chicago in 2019. Like, Oh wow. We had like however many guys break 212, and, um, you know, yeah, Jake Riley had, had ran really well there and ran 210 low and was the first American. And then he followed that up with his big, you know, trials performance, but it's like, yeah, it's like, you're starting to see like the American men um, become, I think start to in the way that they have on the track, like believe that they belong and that there's like this next level of performance that that they can achieve and get to. I think you're starting to see that a little bit more uh, in the marathon, particularly, and also on the roads. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to see American men running two or four consistently anytime soon, but if we could start to get down to where like, 206, 207 is like relatively normal for the the fastest guys like it is in Japan. And then like, then you have like a slew of, I think we can compare ourselves to Japan in the marathon of like, you could have a slew of guys breaking 210 where it's like to qualify for their trials, you have to run close to that anyway. So it's like, that would be, I think, kind of the next step of like, can we have like a hundred guys break 210? and then have 50 guys that are like running 208, 29, and then maybe you have the top 15 that are running 206 or 207. So, Well, I feel like that's just like the perfect response to, you know, there's that clip that was going around on, on Twitter where it was like, we shouldn't get excited about the marathon project results. But I think you just, you just said it. It's like, it's not just about one particular race and like no one is saying that this person is going to beat Kipchoge or we're going to be churning out the people to do so um like overnight but it is just like a big culture shift yeah it's a culture shift and it's like take I think too it's maybe breaking down the barriers that are set with athletes going straight to or you spending too much time on the track basically that are marathoners like identifying people who are marathoners earlier like I've had this discussion with, with a lot of different people and I'm like, there's some athletes that finish NCAA system and should go straight into the marathon, like at least building towards that and not spend, you know, two Olympic cycles trying to make a 10 K team that they're never going to make no offense. But like, if you can't, if you cannot close of 10, if you can't, if you can't close a 10 K in 55 or better, you're just not going to make a team anymore in the U S. And so it's like, you might as well like start, you know, earning your stripes as a marathoner. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Like it doesn't have to be this thing where track is elevated above the marathon. In fact, like you can make a better living and, and just like do, do a nice job as a marathoner and, and be set in a way that I think it's just harder to do on the track uh, for some. And so it's just like, let's break that stereotype. Let's have guys like, let's have 20 athletes every year from the NCAA start you know, really putting themselves in, into like the longer distance stuff, half marathon, marathon, whatever mm-hmm. else. So, so before uh, I want to touch on like some of your final uh, workout, like I want to know about the final workout that you you did with the, with the Bowerman team before realizing like, okay, it might be time to to let it go. But uh, I don't want to gloss over 2008 Boston, Boston Marathon because it was the rainy year and there was just absolute carnage 
on yes. that course. Yes. You having placed fifth, uh, what was your vantage point? Because you know we, we didn't get to see you on the broadcast very much. So put right. us in your shoes. How did that race pan out for you? Because I love hearing 2018 Boston Marathon horror stories. Oh, it's it yeah. It's like it's like war stories, right? That you tell, <laughs> yeah. you, tell you tell your buddies. Um, each time it gets a little bit harder and more gruesome. But I think like no, it was like it was, those were the toughest conditions. Like I think I've, I mean certainly I've ever run in, and um, it was it was one of those things where like I just kind of made a decision pretty early that I was going to like keep my powder dry as much as I could on a day where it's raining that much, and and just like just stay with this group and see what, see what was possible. Cause I knew like any sort of like big time run was kind of out the window. Like I just knew it from riding the, riding the bus, like to the starting line, like you're looking around at people's faces and you can just tell people of like half the people have already kind of like given up. Like you had the line, I think in the press conference, not in the press conference, but afterwards there was like, um, there was a couple of reporters. I might've been in like the scrum around you where someone might've asked, I think it was you. Um, they said like, if you had a long run that morning and it was like 20 something miles, would you have gone and done it? And I think you were just like, no, like just not in yeah. those conditions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd be like, I would push it to the next, I would absolutely yeah. push it to the next day or whatever. So absolutely. And so it's like, it's, it was like, it turned from like um, racing to survival, like really. And so, but I knew that like, that was the, you know, that was like how it was going to have to go. And so like early on, I was questioning my decision though, because I could see this huge pack ahead of me with like all the top players in it. And even the guys that I, that I felt like I could run with and beat, um, but they were way ahead of me. And um, I just kind of settled into the, the group that I, the pace that I felt like was kind of sustainable and the group that I thought I could run with uh, given those conditions. And so, um, it was a little bit of questioning, like, man, did I really mess this up? Like, did I really like, like kind of not give myself a chance? Um, but then you started to see people fall off, um, you know, go through the Hills, like, you know, um, and people are pulling off the course and it's just like, you're right. It's total carnage. And then like the, the lead vehicle is like getting closer kind of like it's, it's not as far away anymore. And so you're like, okay, like clearly I'm doing a, like, I'm doing okay, but I still didn't really know where I was until I got out of the Hills. And, um, you know, some people started yelling at me, like, as you could come into the city, like with a few miles, like four miles ago or something like that. And they're like, you know, you're in 12. Now, now you're in ninth, you know, you're in eighth. Like, and just like that number kept getting higher. And, it wasn't as I had passed a few people, but part of it was people dropping out of the race still ahead of me. And so, um, yeah, I, I was like, man, am I going to, am I going to like get, am I going to podium? Like truly like with two miles or when I moved into fifth with like uh, a mile and a half or two miles to go, I thought, gosh, I really might, po I might get third, like, or I might get second. Like, I don't really know who's ahead of me right now, but, um, it might be possible. So I think that's like kind of what, when I started to get that information, it definitely helped sustain me over the last like 5k of the race. Um, even though like, I mean, I was like, my hands were freezing. Like I couldn't grab the bottles anymore. Like I tried to grab the 40k bottle and I had to like awkwardly grab it with two hands and like just try to get something down and I couldn't. And so you just kind of like try to make it to the end. So Wow. Yeah. Cause it's like, it, we all, we saw, you know, the happy ending with Dez and, and, and Yuki, but it's just like, really, it was just brutal. Uh, that whole entire yeah. day. Oh yeah. That's so crazy. 
Um, I hope, and, you know, but it's made it easier sort of like going forward, like any sort of like rainy day, you look outside the window, you're just like, and you, you are lacking a little bit of motivation to go for a run. Now you're just like, at least it's not like Boston conditions. And so you're able to get, the, get out the door. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. All right. So final thing sort of before we move into the final questions is like recent, this must've been recently or, or when was the last time you, you were in a Bowerman workout um, with the rest of the crew realizing okay this this could be the last one yeah it was it was actually before the trials like that was that was kind of it um i ran the trials came back um uh, you know and then it was like the team was all kind of like scattered too mm-hmm. because it was like what's going to happen this with covid and stuff i think i probably would have still been in them had it had that not happened but that just kind of like again was like this other factor that was kind of pushing me towards the other direction so it's been quite a while. Um, I still like occasionally run with them, um, you know, on their, on their easy days. Uh, but I, I haven't done a workout in a long time. Yeah. All right. Final questions. I ask every guest. First one yes. is what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on let's run.com. Oh man. Like maybe that like, you know, like I didn't deserve a contract, uh, for some reason. And I don't even really remember, like, just like that. I, yeah, like kind of like questioning like Bumbleo's a hack, you know, he's a hack. And it was probably in the last few years. And it's like, why does he even have a contract? I think someone sent it to me. Um, but I was like, and you just laugh at that because it's like, well, only the, the only opinion that really matters is Nike's. So <laughs> there's, they still think there's something there. So, yeah. So apparently it's known that let's run is like alberto's like favorite website to just like like just peruse and kind of get into his own head on what does jerry think of uh, of let's run like is he someone who's like put on the blinders and it's never gone on because he's a ghost when it comes to being any sort of online presence (laughs) i don't think jerry maybe has ever visited the website or like (laughs) or 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 like no i mean he certainly probably knows it exists but jerry i mean he really is like pretty isolated from all that stuff and doesn't care at all and i think the reason the reason he is so shy or like so withdrawn i guess from the media is not because he's shy it's because he really truly wants the focus to be on the athletes and um i think that's just kind of been his mentality i don't know if it's just like his midwestern like you know, disposition of not wanting to be like, not wanting to bring attention to himself, but yeah, that's just kind of been his MO. I think his whole, the whole time. And yeah, I don't, he's, he's never visited let's run.com as far as I know. (laughs) What's the funniest drug testing story you've got? Mm. Funniest. Oh man. Like, yeah. Like, I guess it's like, being it it goes back to like being in in college actually i think probably and i finished uh the usa cross country junior championships in in new york it was in ben Cortland, and it was this really like awkward situation where it was really cold out and it it was the the drug testing station had been set up in like a portageon just like outside of the that area and i just like you know couldn't go, man. Like it was too cold. Like there was just like, and it was like apologizing to the, to like the the gentleman there that was standing with me of like, this just isn't happening for me right now. Like, you know, there's, there's an issue. There's some bad, you know, there's the the pipes are too, uh, they're too cold. So, um, 
they, they did pull me out uh, and, and gave me some hot tea, which ended up doing the trick, and then I was good to go. There you go. Uh, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, assuming they could hold a nice conversational pace with you, where would this run take place and who would it be with? They don't have to be a runner. Oh, man. That's really tough. Like, geez. Uh, so you guys are you guys are known for for going out and training in St. Moritz, and so like you guys like yeah. you've done been there, done that already. <laughs> yeah, St. Moritz is amazing. Um, I might I might pick somewhere. I don't know. Maybe I'd pick somewhere different though. Like um, I think it'd be really cool to. I think it'd actually be really maybe you know honestly I might even pick uh, uh, Kenya like to go on a run with just with Kipchoge and Kenya, just the two of us. That's my, that's my answer because like just to get inside of his head for real, like, I mean, I, I got to meet him and stuff at breaking too, but like that guy has like a lot of thoughts on a lot of different things. I think it's really interesting. And I, I've always kind of wanted to go um, running in Kenya. So this is totally possible. Like Nike could probably make this happen. Um, it, you know, it's not as far fetched as maybe some people's thoughts, but I, I do think as far as like a run goes, that would be a really fascinating thing to get to experience. Oh, I'm glad you reminded me before, like we moved on without it. But so, sort of like breaking two and your experience with that. Like, what were, were there any like really cool memories that you made from going out there and pacing? Because like it, it had to have been like an awesome invite opportunity to get presented by Nike. But at the same time, there's a little bit of pressure there to you, you've got yeah. this job to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like we we spent an entire. I I remember they like finding out the the schedule or the itinerary, and they're like they're bringing us out like eight days before the actual event. And I was like, eight days, like, what are, what are we going to be doing that whole time? But turns out like they, they realized like, okay, you're bringing all these athletes from all over the world with like different backgrounds and like experience and language, like languages. And you're going to expect them all to like be very succinct in doing this one task. And it's really important that they've spent a lot of money on. So it was like this whole week was just like practice of how to do it. And, um, I think that was actually like one of the coolest things was like just meeting athletes, like some of the other athletes. And, you know, it's one time where we're not competing against each other. So it's like this, it's like, we're again, it's like we're competing against the distance of the marathon and just seeing like, can essentially one human do something that's like unthinkable. And can we be, can we be a piece that helps to accomplish that? And so um, it was really powerful. I mean, I think knowing what Kipchoge was up against mentally um, it's one of the, it, it, in some ways it's, it's not as death defying as like Alex Honnold's like assault on in the Yosemite Valley, like doing free solo. But in some ways it's like the mental headspace for both of those athletes is just like on another level. Um, and so just to like contemplate what they were both trying to do. And so I think for me, just like seeing Kipchoge's like attitude and, and calm and like being, I was one of the athletes that actually started the race uh, as like the first pacer with, with Chris, Derek. And so we were in the starters tent with him. And so the silence that was over everyone and, and the um, like intensity of that moment was just like, I was just so happy that I was only going to run like 5k initially because <laughs> it was like, like the, just the feeling of like what, you know, what was being expected of him physically, uh, yeah, it's hard to like really put that into words and that feeling of like that energy that was in the tent and the, but like also a sense of just like serene calm. So mm -hmm. it's something that I'll definitely like never forget, like as far as just athletic experience. 
And I'm going to continue thinking about like that golf analogy that you dropped about like the making the courses a little bit tougher. It's like, I feel like running is the opposite sport. It's like, we want to see things get, get faster. Yes. Like we're not, we're not going to get to the point where like New York city marathon is going to be like, all right, and, uh, let's make this a little tougher for Kipchoge on the first time he tries right. to win this thing. And we'll add a couple more bridges. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's, let's add some, let's add some vert for Kipchoge <laughs> on this course. Yeah. Um, last one has nothing to do with running. You get 25 shots from half court. Uh, if you make one, you win $25 million. If you don't make any, you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots? Hmm. Generally I'm pretty risk averse. Do I get pra- Do I get any sort of practice before that? I, or is it just like, I, I, I oh, think I no. have to do it right now. Okay. Yeah, no cool. practice. Um, I'm pretty risk averse, but I feel like I could probably make one of them. Like, so I think I'm probably doing it. I think I'm going to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, usually, I think Woody was the one who dropped the phrase and said, it's like, 25 million is not my price of freedom. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. And I'm, I never since that's that's a, yeah. That's a fair point. Um, that's a, probably a, a more healthy way to look at it. But <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. All right, Bumby. Well, thank you so much for, for doing this. This was a blast and uh, wishing you all the best uh, with coaching and, and with the new role um, that, that you've got going. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've brought many memories to people watching you race on the track and, and we'll see what's, what comes next too. That sounds great. Thanks for the time, Chris. It was fun. Thanks to Bumby for the conversation, wishing him all the best with high gear running. I've included the link to them in the show notes. If you're interested in discussing your own running goals for 2021 with a personalized coach, check them out. If you enjoyed this episode and want to shout us out in your Instagram stories, tag Sidious Mag and I'll be sure to repost it. And if you've got a really fun story or you took away some inspiration from Andrew Bumbelow's conversation with us, tag the Bowerman Track Club and I'm sure they'd repost it as well. Subscribe to the Sidious Mag newsletter to get all your running news in your inbox from me. Again, if you want to keep the show going strong in 2021, throw us a couple bucks on Patreon or pick up some cool merch. I've included the links to those in the show notes. For now, that's all I've got. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. Legs are feeling good. See you again soon.